Why on earth, suddenly, would all the senior Siloviki, the heads of the various security agencies, suddenly be in the news? And, apart from the obvious, why would I vote no in the forthcoming constitutional vote in Russia? Well, let's find out. I'm Mark Galliotti, and welcome to my view of Russia in Moscow's shadows. This podcast, of varying length, frequency and format, yet always reassuringly low production values, is supported by generous and perspicacious patrons, who also receive extra perks and bonuses appropriate to their tier. If you'd like to join them, just head on to patreon.com slash shadows. But now, on with today's programme. Originally, I was going to run the following topic simply as a cellcast, the bite-sized commentaries that go straight to patrons and then open access a week later. However, as I began to think about it more, I realised that even my mouth wasn't big enough to take this in one bite. So, here goes. Sometimes I feel like I'm playing Silovic Monopoly, hoping to get a set of security chiefs so that I I can build a little green plastic house on them or similar. In my last full podcast, I opined at some length on Security Council Secretary Nikolai Patrushev, riffing off an article of his in Argumenti Facti. Well, since then, he's also had a think piece, and I use that term in its broadest and most generous sense, in the stodgy heavyweight government newspaper Rasiskaya Gazeta, that's something of a perverse delight. More on it in a moment. But it's particularly interesting because in different formats, each in some ways suggestive, of late, most of the senior security-related officials have been in the limelight. As well as Patrushev's recent authorial adventures, we've seen the new Prosecutor-General, Igor Krasnov, deliver an address to the Federation Council that got a certain amount of coverage. Foreign Intelligence Chief Sergei Narishkin, give the first ever interview in the service's Yasiniva compound to the BBC's Steve Rosenberg. Defence Minister Sergei Shoigu opened the stunningly, splendidly over-the-top new army church and milk that for all it's worth in various rather unsubtle subsequent messaging. Federal Security Service head Alexander Bortnikov personally hype his agency's successes in rooting out terrorism and thus ensuring public security. And Alexander Bastrykin, head of the investigative committee, reshuffle the responsibilities of his various deputies, but also very publicly issue orders to look into a whole series of local cause celeb, from a medical-related fraud case in St. Petersburg to inter-ethnic violence in Dagestan. Frankly, all we need now is military intelligence chief Igor Kostyukov to share his favourite blini recipes or weighing in on the PFC Sochi versus FC Rostov football match, where, incidentally, um, coronavirus meant that Rostov had to field their youth team and thus receive an unsurprising 10 to 1 drubbing. And then we pretty much have the full set. Now, this is all in the past just over a week. And while you'd expect some coverage for such senior figures, Krasnov, for example, had to give his report to the Federation Council, and Bortnikov was briefing Putin, there does seem to be an unusual level of activity, 
or at least an active pursuit, shall we say, of visibility. It's also interesting that there seem to be two different personae that they adopt. Prosecutor General Krasnov, FSB Chief Bortnikov and Investigative Committee Head Bastrykin are all basically playing the role of the sober professional, the responsible and reliable, safe pair of hands. Although in Bastrykin's case, there's also a slight whiff of ambulance chasing as he tries to associate himself with every single hot-button issue around. But that's practically part of the course for him. Conversely, Foreign Intelligence Head Narishkin, Defence Minister Shoigu and Security Council Secretary Patrushev decided to play the exciting role of historical cultural warriors. In a way, Shoigu's contribution is encoded in the 95-metre-high, six-domed, golden khaki form of the new church at Park Patriot. And I must say, I'm so looking forward to seeing it. All he's had to do, really, is riff off that. Continually to reprise his role as, if it's not too much of a contradiction in terms, the bombastically modest legatee of the Marshals of Victory in World War II. Narishkin, by contrast, um, who's a long-time hawk and a keen amateur historian, as well as being head of the Foreign Intelligence Service, he's also the chairman of the Russian Historical Society, he used his interview inter alia not just to ride, but positively to gallop on the Kremlin's usual hobby horse, that the United States was seeking global hegemony. Hey, Washington, by the way, how is that working out for you? And that popular ignorance in the West about the Soviet Union's role in the defeat of Nazi Germany, which is, let's be honest, a depressingly real phenomenon, is, quote, not accidental. Of course, those all-powerful hidden persuaders plotting once again to deny Russia its rightful place in the world. But, of course, it's Nikolai Platonovich Pashushev who takes the crown. Usually, his public pronouncements, after all, focus on strategy and geopolitics. This time, though, he goes into full-on froth on the spiritual and moral values of society as the basis of state sovereignty. I'll put a link to the article in the show notes, as it's worth a glance through Google Translate, if need be. But here's a few quotes just to give you a sense of, of what he says. The system of traditional Russian values, evolving over centuries, is the spiritual and moral foundations of our society. Okay, what about the West, though? Ah, well, here he says, neoliberalism, and by neoliberalism he doesn't mean an economic, but essentially a sort of a moral and larger, broader cultural message. Neoliberalism instills individualism, selfishness, a cult of hedonism, unrestrained consumption fetishizes the freedom of expression. Ah, that terrible fetishistic freedom. He goes on. Now, Western values have turned to imposing an alien worldview on the world. Western ideologists offer whole countries and peoples a choice. Either you accept universal values, and that, I should mention, is in scare quotes, or your values are wrong. Immoral. By contrast, according to Patrushev, unlike the West, Russia offers a new civilizational choice, which includes equality, justice, non-interference with internal affairs. Now look, 
This is not at all new, quite the opposite. It's actually a standard view within the sort of the Putinist moral and model, rather, is that, first of all, it has a unique civilizational and with it a unique civilizational mission in the world. Secondly, that an arrogant and intolerant West is actively trying to reshape Russia in its image and in the process break Russia's uniqueness and also break its unique status within the world. And that on that global scale, Russia offers other countries sovereignty by the fact that it resists Western homogenization. Of course, that's sovereignty unless you happen to be Ukraine or Georgia, but that's a whole other matter. So you don't have to basically reshape your entire society in line with what the West wants because Russia is standing up for you. While I don't for a moment doubt that this is indeed Patrushev's view, this is not his usual idiom. Why this? Why now? Why are all of them suddenly so vocal? And particularly, why is there this split between the technocratic and the ideological cultural dimensions? Now, look, let's not exclude that the sudden coincidence is like a planetary alignment, just a a random phenomenon when their respective orbits happen to come together. There's always, after all, the danger of forcing meaning, of investing patterns on chaos. Okay, but that caveat delivered. Here are a few, perhaps, more interesting answers. First prospects of herd mentality. We see this, especially in systems with relatively high levels of insecurity and low levels of transparency. One person does something, and everyone else feels compelled to follow suit. After all, he must know something, and it's dangerous to be left behind. This is, after all, quite a poignant moment, one of instability and, above all, uncertainty. Putin is about to hold his constitutional vote and be granted much greater power and a much longer shelf life. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that I think he will win that vote. Be amazed at my daring. But at the same time, the human and economic impacts of coronavirus are still going to be absolutely unguessable. The president's ratings are brittle and declining. The elite are unhappy. And the world is arguably a scary place, not least as China becomes more aggressive, or more assertive at the very least, and a Biden victory in the United States becomes more plausible, and it will be charged with a degree of, if not Russophobia, at least considerable Russo dislike. But let's be honest, when isn't it a troubling time? This is one of the secrets of the the Russian pundit game. One can always frame any story on Russia in these kind of terms. I suspect, and here is the other secret, that however confidently we opine, we outsiders can never truly know what's going on in that black box of the inner Putin circle. But anyway, I, I suspect that the boss is indeed agitated at the moment. And when the boss is agitated, his henchmen feel the need to look busy. And this, I think, explains the split between those focusing on grand civilizational themes and those concentrating on technocratic detail. The latter, Krasnov, Bastrykin, Bortnikov, have fewer and weaker personal ties to Putin. For them, every dawn breaks under the cloud that is the knowledge that they are expendable. Putin will not demote them capriciously and he will likely ensure that they do have a soft landing if they are pushed from their pinnacles. But still, they need regularly to demonstrate not just loyalty, but value. 
in their different ways, the, the message is the same. There's a lot to be done, boss, but don't worry, I'm on it. In different ways, Patrushev, Shoigu and Narishkin are much closer to Putin on a, on a human level. I think particularly, to just mention Narishkin, people often underestimate his connections with Putin. But it's worth remembering, it's not just that they're both uh, Leningraders or Peterburgers. Narishkin's known Putin since they met in the KGB in 1980. And he's been a loyal soldier since. Under the Medvedev presidency, he was the head of the presidential administration. And it's widely and I think rightly assumed that he was there not because he was Dima's man, but precisely because he was there to keep an eye on him for Putin. He also, and again, it's once again, these tends to be these human details that, around which politics can pivot, is a keen amateur historian, an interest that he absolutely shares with the boss. And history is definitely on Putin's mind, especially as Victory Day Parade 2.0 nears. We've seen it in a number of his pronouncements at the moment, but especially this rather bizarre and historically semi-literate article he had published in the US magazine The National Interest. In particular, he seems to have an almost obsessive urge to defend the Nazi-Soviet Pact of 1939, that the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact. In his National Interest article, The Real Lessons of the 75th Anniversary of World War II, that's a exciting title. Um, and by the way, if you're in contemplating reading it, frankly, I'd say don't bother. Amidst much relatively unobjectionable orthodoxy about the implications of the Versailles Treaty after World War I and the failure of the League of Nations and so forth, he spends a lot of time trying to defend the Nazi-Soviet pact, even trying to draw a direct parallel with the Munich Agreements. As if, I don't know, Britain and France had joined in the subsequent dismemberment of Czechoslovakia, the way Germany and the Soviet Union gobbled up Poland. It's interesting because this is clearly a deeply felt personal passion. In practical terms, look, he's on a loser. He is not going to win this argument. Give it up, Vova. It ain't worth it. In the same article, he admits that Stalin did much that was bad. So why not just say... The Nazi-Soviet pact was a cynical piece of statecraft. Stalin was trying to delay the inevitable war with Germany, and if that had to be at Poland's expense, well, so be it. Such were, after all, the uncaring necessities of the time. But no, again and again Putin returns to it, and this is something that clearly therefore matters to him. And so if the boss is currently in historical, grand civilizational mode, then so too must his closest allies. If the lesser demigods are desperate to demonstrate their value, the greater angels of Putin's firmament must instead demonstrate relevance. They must demonstrate attunement to the great man's concerns. So Patrushev abandons his usual idiom for a bit of Huntingdonian clash of civilizations. Narishkin hypes his historian's credentials, accuses the West of airbrushing history, and slyly praises Winston Churchill, who is, after all, currently boxed up on his plinth in London to, to save him from protesters' spray cans. And Shoigu can pose before his church, a multi-domed phallic symbol of the army's cultural manhood. And, let's be honest, this is also it's worth mentioning a man who, after all, never served in the military, 
clothe himself in the cloak of martial glory and great victory. So, in short, I would suggest that this flurry of posturing shows, first of all, that there is a degree of uncertainty in the elite, probably driven by a similar disconcertedness on the part of the boss. Secondly, that the different stakes of different people within the security elite have been demonstrated by this, that some must demonstrate utility, others must simply demonstrate empathy. And, well, thirdly, look, who isn't here? It's Interior Minister Kalakoltsev. Um, he was in the news, sort of, kind of. He was handing awards to two traffic cops who, admirably, took on an armed suspect. Uh, he was warming, warning of the dangers of cybercrime. Well, fair enough. This is sensible, this is worthy, and thoroughly lacking in excitement and newsworthiness, which in itself might be a suitable epitaph for Russia's top cop. A man whose apparent commitment just to doing a decent job is guaranteed to keep him on the fringes of real power. Ultimately, this is a court, and courts need courtiers. And if you're not willing to be a courtier, then frankly, you're not going to get far in court. Just the usual reminder, you're listening to the In Moscow Shadows podcast. You can support it by going to patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows. And remember that patrons get a variety of additional perks, as well as knowing that they're supporting this peerless source on all things Russian. And you can also follow me on Twitter at Mark Galliotti or on Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. Now, back to the show. Very briefly, I wanted to talk about the constitutional vote that's coming up and why. And please, Comrade Colonel, do not construe this as an attempt to meddle in Russia's democratic politics. Why I would vote no were I a Russian citizen. Voting yes is, let's be honest, just about legitimating Putin's future planning, either for a diagonal move into the state council or a straight line into one or two more presidential terms. And I think he's made it clear at the moment in his most recent statements that he still hasn't in some ways decided what he's going to do. But the point is, he doesn't want people either thinking of him as a lame duck or else beginning to get consumed with thinking about the succession. All the nice stuff in the amendments about pensions and minimum wage and so forth is really just sugarcoating and candy floss to hide the hard core and rot your teeth in the process. After all, you don't need constitutional emendations for them. No one is saying, oh, we'd love to give pensioners more money, but the constitution won't allow it. But there's another set of very specific reasons why I would have in voting no rather than just simply not bothering to vote at all. The main one is this. Referenda, plebiscites and elections in today's Russia are important not so much for the final result. In essence, the Kremlin will get, or at least record, the outcome it wants. Rather, they're important as indices of how much effort the state has to put in to getting that result. How much propaganda? How ruthlessly do you have to muzzle the opposition? How big a price tag is there going to be on the various sweeteners that you offer? And, at the end, how much out-and-out electoral fraud do you need to apply to get that result? 
So in some ways, that is the crucial issue. It is that gap between the real vote as it would have been and the vote that they intend to get. The bigger the gap, the harder the climb to get to those suitably um, state-reaffirming results, then the more pressure on the state, the more pressure on the legitimacy of the regime. Now, it's interesting that, that just today, and I'm recording this on the morning of Monday the 22nd of June, in the newspaper Commerçant, we had Sergei Novikov, who's head of the uh, Public Policy Programs Department at the Presidential Administration, stressing that while total turnout wasn't quite as important, given the virus, given that it was summer and so forth, everyone's off at their dachas, the vote's perceived legitimacy absolutely was something that concerned them. So both percentage yes vote, but all, also how people feel about that result. An abstention is not a yes vote, sure, but it's also a null one. Um, there's nothing really to say that it doesn't mean that you just simply were at your dacha and didn't get around to doing online voting or similar. It also makes rigging the vote easier because it simply means filling in a blank and it's much harder to identify the manipulation in that case. A no is a bit, only a little bit, harder to change and is more likely to be statistically identifiable. But more importantly is this. While the Kremlin announces the results it wants, it does get the true data. In my view, this unnecessary vote was a gesture of particular contempt for the Russian people, treating them as sheeple, morons to be distracted with a few pretty and petty baubles. And one should just look at the gimmicks which have been used to attract people to the polls or to sign up, uh, even making it into a sort of virtual prize draw lottery. And the Kremlin is requiring them simply to enact a submission to the state and to do so at a time of pandemic. And OK, you can vote online and so forth, but still, that's not the point. Voting in the main is a good thing, but this is such a sham vote. I mean, with, there's no campaigning for, for on the no side, and although theoretically they shouldn't be on the yes side, there patently is on a massive scale. There is no opportunity to disaggregate the paquette of options to be able to say, I like this, I don't like that, such that put all that together and it's entirely meaningless. In that respect, for me, the Kremlin deserves a rebuke. It may even force it to make some very sort of minor course corrections, which is pretty much about the best that we can really hope for. But nonetheless, the point is, it needs to be made to work for its triumph. And ideally, for that effort to be visible, so that actually people realise what it's doing, and go, well, I say realise, get to see that it's doing that, and also that it's an effort, that it forces additional grit into the machinery of the Putinist order. We have, for example, governors who are already having to battle with the joys of coronavirus are now also being expected to push out the vote. We have central apparatus having to do the same. I mean, in a way, the more people have to hustle, the more people have to work at this, the better. And that's why I would vote no, but I would do it online. Stay safe. Well, that's the end of another episode of the In Moscow Shadow podcast. Just as a reminder, beyond this, you can follow my blog, also called In Moscow Shadows. Follow me on Twitter, at Mark Galliotti. 
or Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. This podcast is made possible by generous and enlightened patrons, and you too can be one. Just go along to my Patreon page, that's patreon.com slash shadows, and decide which tier you want to join, getting access to exclusive materials and other perks. However, whether or not you contribute, thank you very much indeed for listening. Until next time, keep well. Oh, you, Tavarish Prah.